spend Christmas with me, but if you won't, you ain't nothing but a reindeer, prancing all the time. Well, if you ain't here for Christmas, then you ain't no friend of mine. If only you could hear what I'm saying. Hello, everyone. This is Dan, your host, main host for Eventually Super Train. This is episode 81. Uh, welcome. If this is your first time hearing, this is the short-lived TV show podcast. We cover uh, uh, three shows at a time, one episode at a time, generally. Short-lived TV shows that never got enough love. Eventually, we will cover Super Train on this episode. And I will uh, I will, I will give you a few more details about how this episode is actually being edited and how it's happening a little later in the episode. But in this episode, we are starting off with Masquerade, episode 31. Mitchell Hadley and myself, the second of the W. Hermanos episodes. Then, hooray, Amanda's back discussing episode 11, Spanish Gambit of Masquerade. And then the third segment is something special. I just, it's this, it's Christmas time when I'm editing this. Well, it's it's the afternoon of Christmas Eve, so I wanted to do something Christmassy at the end. So you will hear what happens then. But right now, I'd just like us to uh, hop right in. So here we go. Bourbon Street Beat, episode 31, with Mr. Mitchell Hadley. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans. Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Bourbon Street Beat. Episode... 31, Deadly Persuasion, May 9th, 1960, directed by Charles R. Arundu, written by Bernie Giller, Bern Giller, and W. Hermanos. In this episode, Cal is called to a boys' reformatory to do something or other for something or other in the community to try to do something or uh, it's it's just he's hanging out and just trying to uh, see how rotten the boys are or not and they are pretty rotten and there's a bunch of boys in there that are trying to arrange something uh where they all end up in the infirmary and then they take advantage of a doctor who is very beleaguered and a nurse who is a little less beleaguered and try to hostage themselves out of there and Cal sort of is recruited by the sister of one of the boys in the reformatory, who's in the sick bay, uh, is in the in the in the infirmary, um, uh, because she is about to very uh, uh, marry a very wealthy gentleman, and he is not going to be happy if he discovers that his uh, fiance is married to someone in a reformatory who is committing a felony and is about to be sent uh, to prison. And so Cal has to do something or other, or I don't know. Um, I'll be honest, uh, this may be a preview of what happens in the rest of this discussion, but the W. Hermanos thing wasn't great in the last episode, but worked and was fun. W. Hermanos doesn't work here. And we will discuss that as we go. Uh, this is recorded about a month before the discussion you're about to hear. So this is me just re-watching a bit of this episode and being really annoyed by it. So we'll see what happens as we talk 
Deadly Persuasion. Here's a blast. Bourbon Street Drinks. Deadly Persuasion, episode 31. What the heck? Where are we now in Bourbon Street Beat? Well, we are still in the, we are in the second episode of the W. Hermanos episodes. And I am here with a W. Hermanos friend of mine, Mr. Mitchell Hadley. How are you, sir? I am well. How are you, Dan? Good, good. I am. I am. Let, let's dive right into this one. Let's see. What, what did What did you think of? Okay. Deadly persuasion. Well, as you mentioned, it's part of the W. Hermanos uh, uh, over. And uh, for those of you who hadn't heard our last podcast, a brief recap: W. Hermanos is a pen name meaning that uh, no one person is responsible for this episode. In fact, what it is is an episode that has been tweaked and partly rewritten from another episode of another show sometime in the past so that Warner Brothers could continue to produce shows during the Writers Guild strike. And um, the W in W Hermanos stands for Warner, and Hermanos itself is uh, Spanish for brothers. So you get the joke. Um, anyway, um, this episode, I think, kind of has some of those trademarks uh, as well that you can tell it's coming from a different uh, source material because, again, it's kind of a fish-out-of-water episode. We've got Cal becoming involved in a, um, a, a prison drama of sorts. It's a boys' reformatory. What is it? called the Braxton Reformatory for Future Hoods. Uh, actually, I made up that last part about it, but it is the Braxton Reformatory. Love and Cal, it. as a good civic-minded citizen, <laughs> is um, a part of a group that is going, uh, kind of inspecting, going through the reformatory with the hopes that they might be able to encourage some government spending, uh, some increased government spending. Now, this is our first tip that this might be coming from a different source material because, as you know, if you know anything at all about politics in the state of Louisiana, the only sure way to increase spending for anything is to grease palms. And so they don't need Cal to be uh, giving testimonials and evidence to uh, legislative committees in order to convince them that they need to spend more on these young men to make them productive members of uh, society. What he does need to be doing is investing not time but money. Uh, to uh, convince these uh, representatives to help them see the light, as we should say. Now, <laughs> that being as it is, it um, this is an interesting episode. Uh, we have um, one of the classic Cal lines in this episode. As a matter of fact, I would go as far as to say this is Cal's signature line. Um, we'll come up with one for Rex later on, but this is Cal's signature line. He's going through the reformatory, and one of these punks decides that he's going to get smart with this big city detective. And so as Cal walks past him, he brushes 
the dirt from his cleaning broom onto Cal's shoes and then makes a big show of being apologetic for the whole thing. Uh, uh, and um, Cal makes an equal show of uh, saying that he understands and these things happen. And, um, and he offers his hand to Shank. And he gives this kid a crushing handshake uh, that causes the kid to to wince a bit and cal comes up with the line he says uh we were both mistaken you thought i was a sucker and i thought you were a man and this is yes if you wanted yes. one thing that describes cal i think in a nutshell that is just a perfect line and um you know, without having to get snide or or anything, Cal has just stuck a shiv right in this punk's back, and it's it's a thing of beauty to see. If this was all that we had to this episode, I would have uh, I would have turned off the TV satisfied. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> I I I love that 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 moment. I think. It's funny. I will say with this episode, and I don't, I don't, I don't like to go too negative, but um, there was something about this episode that I love that moment with with um, with Cal, but there was something about this episode, the mix of Kenny stuck in this loop of interviewing random secretaries. Um, which has mm-hmm. is is as you're saying in the previous one you said is it is getting more and more surreal, but it's also getting more and more like can we not? Are we the the Actors Guild aren't on strike? Can, can we not? You know, SAG isn't on strike. Can, <laughs> can we not hire someone? Because there hits a time where it's like uh, uh, there was this weird thing where the last two episodes they've used the front entrance office and the corner of Cal's office. So we don't see the main room with the spiral staircase and the kitchen and everything. So it feels a little claustrophobic to me mm-hmm. when, whenever they whenever they cut to that space. And I I got to I, I you know, I watched the episode twice. The first time I didn't like it. The second time I was able to take more detailed notes on why I didn't like it. I was hoping the second time through would be me realizing why I should have liked it. I think... I don't know... But instead... But instead, (laughs) I don't know... My thought for this episode, and again, I didn't hunt down where this episode came from, but my thought is this episode is, is from... When did Dr. Kildare start? Or like Ben Casey. Was it before this? I, I'm I'm... I'm not 100% sure. Um, like the first well, doctor. Well, Casey or Dr. Kildare if you if you go back to the radio serial and oh, the movie movies, serial. Yes. Yeah, that was yeah, that would have been quite a ways before this. So there certainly would have been something else. So and you, you know something else that this reminds me of actually just to to butt in on that is kind oh, of like Father Flanagan in Boys Town. Oh yes. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah. That's I I think um the 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 problem I had with this episode and I think it does I I was a little confused with Rex in the previous episode because I thought he was meant to be some sort of secret agent but in the end I was able to go with it this one 
the first time Cal goes to the prison, because he goes twice, or the reformatory, the first time he goes, he goes for this committee and stuff like that, and I was a little unconvinced, but I was like, okay, he's he's a civic-minded gentleman. He was a cop. He's a detective. I get it. But then the second time he goes back, which is where all the actual action happens, he's hired as a detective in what I think is the dumbest one of the dumbest scenes I, I've seen. Uh, the scene where the the, <laughs> sis, the sister of the guy, and we don't want to ruin it, but there, there's just, there's a moment, okay, you know what, I got a lot of problems with this episode, and I'm going to not get too negative, but this has been the only episode of Bourbon Street Beat so far in the first 31 where I was watching it, and I stopped it. And I said, I can't. I got to come back later. Mm. I can't. I can't do this. And that was, you watch the first 15 minutes or so when he first goes to the reformatory. And it's not very interesting to me. Although there, one of the guys does look a lot like a young David Tennant. Uh, the 10th Doctor and from Broadchurch and mm, stuff yes. like that. And and so I was like, oh, that's interesting. Is that uh, one of his uh, uh, relatives? Is, is his father or something? Um, but he's Scottish, so it's prob- probably not is the answer to that question. And so we get a lot of um, him talking to the... Actually, my favorite moment of the episode is that the fact that they named the warden or the commandant or whoever the heck is in charge of the reformatory, Douglas Hayes who wrote the script that they commandeered in the previous episode. <laughs> that, I thought, was like, yes. okay, we're still having fun. It, regardless of the strike, uh-huh. we're still having fun. Um, but but it's funny because, you, you know, I, I, lo- I, love, I love Cal so much. I think he's such a good character. And, and so he's there and he's talking. I'll call him the warden. He's talking with the warden, and then he meets the nurse, and then he meets this over-emphatic doctor. And then he meets these annoying um, uh, uh, punks. I guess we'll call them punks. You know, all under 18. I think that's a good word. Yeah, yeah, all under 18. But obviously they all look a little older than that. And um, uh, (laughs) and, and so, so like the first 15, 16, 17 minutes are like, okay, I don't know where this is going and I'm not particularly interested. But it's Bourbon Street Beat, so I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt. Then uh, um, uh, Cal returns to the office and is told he has a client at a local restaurant. So he goes to talk with her and he begins talking with her and discovers that her brother is in the reformatory. He and he was actually um, he apparently might be having a bout of appendicitis. I I a bout of appendicitis. He appendicitis. I mean you don't have a bout of appendicitis. It's not. Yeah. Sorry. Um. But but he's he might be uh, have appendicitis. And and so I'm watching him talking with her, and he says, um, "How do you know him?" And I said, one second before she said, "I'm his mother," and she says. I'm his sister. And I said, I can't do this. I need a break. <laughs> We've Just two... be grateful that she didn't say I'm his mother and his, his sister. sister. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. <laughs> Robert Town wrote the script for this one. W. Hermano's story by Robert Town. Um, uh, the, the, uh, but, but the moment I saw that, I was like, I can't because um, – because 
although the guys in the reformatory look older than 18, they're meant to be under 18, so 15, 16, 17. Yeah. And then you see this woman who, and we've talked about this before, people looking older. She, to me, looks like she's in her mid-30s, mid early to mid-30s. I'm his sister. And I'm like, whoa, they took like a 20-year gap there. But then, then she says like, well, my our parents died six years ago, and I've been taking care of him. And at the end of the episode, I think they say that he's 16, possibly 17, which means she started taking care of him when he was like around 11. So how old was she? She must have been at least 18. And it was just, I got so 18, yeah. confused by it. And I realized that I wasn't enjoying the episode enough to warrant the confusion. Because you were having a flashback to six hours to midnight, weren't you? <laughs> I, you were, no, but, except instead of the time, it was the age. Yes, exactly. Well, well you the have thing, the you have this hang up on the linear time, uh, don't I you? I do. I oh, <laughs> the, but the thing with six hours to midnight, however, is that throughout six hours to midnight, as and long you're as always it, talking about time travel too. I am. May, I, th I, th I think I think uh, I think Cal has lost his convertible TARDIS is what it's come down to. Um, I, I won't go. I, I, I won't go too more uh, into this, but it's just like just the the episode sort of bugged me um, that the sister. So 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 Cal is done doing what he's doing. The sister calls him up and says they're going to send my brother to maximum security. Oh, well, whatever. But I'm about to marry a very wealthy, influential man. You need to go to him and tell him not to go to maximum security. Okay. And he goes. And I thought, wait a minute. What? What just happened right there? And he goes there to tell the brother, your sister doesn't want you to go to maximum security because she's marrying a rich man and that might jeopardize the wedding. And I thought, okay, that... I don't like that. And then the guys who are in the infirmary, including our the brother, they have a plan where they have three steak knives and they're going to hold the reformatory in hostage, uh, which I wasn't terribly convinced of because I'm almost convinced no. <laughs> I'm almost convinced that steak knives in a reformatory aren't very sharp. Um, and so. And the problem was it was just like it's 30 minutes into the episode before anything happens. And by that point, I was so, even though I was focusing on, on Cal, I so didn't care. And and the the final like 15, 16, 17 minutes, which involve an appendectomy, which which apparently is a thing you do like making a milkshake. I didn't know this. It's just, it's crazy. It's, 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 and it's just like, it, there, there's no, there's no sense of urgency. And I, I, I don't dislike no sense of urgency. I love plenty of movies that have no sense of urgency, but it's, it's meant to have a sense of urgency and it doesn't. And then it just gets, I just felt like, and I, I don't think I've said this about Bourbon Street Beat, but I felt like this episode was dumb and, and it bothered me. And 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 Kel does his best, but I feel like this was written for that doctor and possibly the nurse. 
and maybe they were like a Dr. Kildare type of doctor or something who was like, this episode you're going to this reformatory to help out some kids. And this happens. And they wrote this detective in badly. And I just... Well, if you... if you, yeah. oh, I was, oh, oh, I was going to say... I don't like this episode, Mitchell. I don't. I don't mean. To, I hope this is the the bottom because I've enjoyed to loved all the episodes. <laughs> but this, I'm sorry, this episode really, like, like I said, the first time I watched it when I didn't quite know where it was going, I was bored. The second time I watched it when I knew where it was going, I was bored and annoyed. And so um, I'll let you talk because I feel like I'm being overly negative. <laughs> what I was going to say was that um, the. The, the whole thing about the, the the episode being borrowed from another source uh, I think that when you when you talked about the, the true story being about the doctor and maybe maybe the nurse I think you're on to something there because what this story really is is about the, the a doctor whose name is of course dr Hart and um, we're led to believe that he could use a heart because he's become so negative and so jaundiced, so cynical about his work because you, you know, these kids cut each other up, you patch them up, send them back out and they either wind up back in here or dead. And he wants to go into more of a private practice where he can make some money and feel like he's really accomplishing something. So when you boil down all of the other added elements of the story that's really what this is about it's about this doctor's attempt to regain his faith in his profession and to realize that he is accomplishing something by uh working with these kids and by uh, treating them and removing their appendix and turning them around so that they're not bad kids anymore. I think this is his story, and it tends to get lost a little bit because all of a sudden he has this epiphany, which happens very quickly, and everybody lives happily ever after. Um, Again, not trying to give away anything from the end of the story because there's some other things that go on, but that's what this is really about. And the nurse who loves him and believes in him but also believes in uh, what she's doing, so she's trying to to be loyal to him, but still try to get him to stay there. But if he goes, she's got to go and follow yes. him. And you know, that's what the story is really about. And you're right; it could be, it could be an episode of of Doctor Kildare. It would have actually made more sense if Kildare had been observing this happening to a fellow intern of his. Um, but I think, and and, and there are some some of the some of the lines translate to that too there's there's one where he's talking about the the kid billy and he says he's not a bad kid he just doesn't know the difference between right and wrong and i'm thinking in other words he's a psychopath <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's pretty much a clinical definition right there they all under, of a sudden yeah, are doing they, a mystery science theater with yes it. yeah that, that was the tricky thing like like i said is that ah i i just i just felt like if if knowing what we know about how this was written um it i think this will happen i think mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i i'm 
The only other thing I have to add to it, the the actor playing uh, Dr. Hart is Arthur Franz. You might recognize his name. If you don't recognize his name, you surely would recognize him if you saw him. You'd probably say, oh, yeah, that guy, because he's in everything. He's in Perry Mason. He's in other Warner's shows. He's in a lot of things from this era, and I would have expected that the role written for him would allow him to do a little more in the way of projecting some depth into the doctor's realization that he does have a mission and that it's to stay here. Yes. There probably would have been some scene at the end where the um, the head of this very exclusive clinic comes to see him to finalize and sign all the papers, and he tells <laughs> yeah. him, I'm sorry, but I've realized this is where I belong. Yes. And um, that's, I kind of would have expected that rather than the denouement that we have to have that involves Cal and the resolution of uh, the issue with his client uh, and and all of that. So you remember how in past episodes I have said this wouldn't this may not be a great episode but it wouldn't stop me from watching from getting sure. involved in it Sure if this had been the first episode I would have been inclined I I maybe would have been inclined to not give it another try because yeah. it doesn't it it doesn't work. Now, coming in the middle or towards the end here, you write it off as a clunker and you say, yeah, they can't all be, they can't all be great or even yeah, gr- good. Gr- Groucho so, marks it. Yeah, yeah, they can't, they can't all be good. You gotta yeah. expect a bad joke every once in yeah. a while, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, the best, the best, um, the best advice is probably to go to our next episode, which is suitable for framing, and to just say, to just play a mulligan. Yes, and say, yeah. okay, if they, had just, if they had ended it with Cal's line about, I uh, thought you were a man, that should have been That's the end of the episode. Line, yes. We would have all gone home happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, um, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop talking about this one here. Just, although I will say that in the closing credits, one of the actors' last name is Tennant. I didn't look to see if it was the guy who looked like mm. David Tennant uh, because I just thought um, – I'm. Go- I need to leave something up in the air about this episode for me because, like, like, uh, you know, oh, that's like, time travel of the act. Too. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, yeah, I just um, it's it's um, you know, if if you if 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 you're if you're enjoying the show, folks, definitely watch the episode. But if it annoys you, please um, remember that you were warned. Um, I think this is this. I, well, that's his. It, it's history. At the end of the day, I mean, uh, you know, like when 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 the nineteen what was it seventy seven seventy eight seventy nine eighty uh, when the nineteen eighty writer strike hit, everyone had to wait like two extra months to see who shot. And also in the who shot Jr. You don't know who shot Jr. until like three or four episodes in. But but who shot Jr. Happened in like May or so of 1980. The writer strike hit, and it wasn't until November rather than September that we got the season beginning again. But it was like two or three episodes, so it wasn't until like late November, December that we learned who shot Jr. And it drove everyone up the wall. But at least you didn't get a kind of stinker episode like this trying to fill in the time. Um, so yeah, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I don't even know what deadly persuasion means. I mean, those little steak knives they had are not, 
and 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 if if you hold a knife at someone's throat, that's not persuasion, is it? I mean, there's a difference between persuasion and coercion. Like if I have a gun yeah. at your head, I'm not persuading you. I, I I'm making you. So I don't understand the title. I don't understand why they chose this episode apart from um, just uh, scrambling to to find something to fill the schedule. So, um, uh, Mitchell, do you have anything else on this one? <laughs> no, I think that uh, that is pretty much all that needs to be said. All right. Uh, and so let's. Um, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me at uh, the website itsabouttv.com. The name of the website is It's About TV. The name of the book is The Electronic Mirror. The name of the author is Mitchell Hadley. And you'll forgive me that the name of the game here is about selling books, which is why I mentioned that. But um, I, um, I think that it's an endless source of... Uh, entertainment and interested to look at the uh, intersection between classic television and American culture and uh, Bourbon Street Beats, one of those shows that you get introduced to that just makes you glad that you got into this in the first place. And uh, so that, that was you. deadly. Thank you for reading. That was deadly persuasion. I don't know what the hell it was. Uh, you know, if you enjoyed it, feel free to comment and, and tell me why you did. And I God can bless tell, you if you did. God bless you, everyone. <laughs> uh, and I may, might be able to tell you why you're wrong. Uh, you know, opinions aren't supposed to be wrong, but this time it might happen. So uh, let us uh, let's just end it here. Deadly persuasion, curtain down. All right, that was our Bourbon Street Beat Chat. Uh, normally, I don't dive in in between the segments, but I have my reasons here. Uh, th thank you again, Mitchell, as always, for joining me. I'm, I'm having a great time talking about the show. I wish that that episode didn't stink so heavily. But what are you going to do? Uh, little, little, uh, just background right here. I am editing this. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's Christmas Eve. Uh, afternoon. I've only got a few hours uh, until I have to begin making the dinner and watch a Bishop's Wife and cheese potato soup. My annual cheese potato soup, and I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, and we, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to have a, a lovely evening, but I wanted to get this episode done kind of up and running um, uh, by the end of today. Hopefully that's the, the plan, at least. Uh, it's, you know, SoundCloud willing. So what happened was the masquerade segment that you're about to hear was recorded less than 24 hours ago. It was recorded in the evening of the 23rd. So I haven't had a chance to listen to it. I know it was a good chat. I know Amanda and I had a good time. So what I'm actually going to do is I am going to upload it without editing on it. I'm just going to put it, put the whole chunk shebang up there and it's going to be there and all, uh, you know, um, any slip ups and goof ups and all. Um, now, if, however, having said that, if if you are hearing this, then you are about to hear the unedited sort of raw, raw. I make it sound like we're Eddie Murphy, uh, but no. Well, occasionally there's a there's a little uh, naughty. Um, uh, uh, but um, the yeah, if if you're hearing this, it's because you're hearing the you're going to hear the unedited version, the straight up right off the Skype recorder uh, version. If you're not hearing this, then you're hearing I've I, I've gone back in and edited it, which I probably will do. Um, uh, which I probably will do. But right now I want to put this episode up and Amanda and I are always fun to hear. I think, I think we're fun. I don't know. So yeah, this is Masquerade. 
episode 11, Spanish Gambit. Enjoy. The United States of America would like to invite you to come spy with me. Adventures looking in your window Something out of the ordinary Come with me now and let's explore the secret passions I can see you're someone special Masquerade, Spanish Gambit. It's April 20th, 1984. This episode, Spanish Gambit, is directed by Phil Bondelli, teleplayed by Andrew Schneider, story by Howard Burke. It's a Burke and Schwartz. He's one of the Manimal guys who co-created Baywatch Nights. Uh, uh, Howard Burke and Andrew Schneider did the story. Um, and maybe something got a little confusing between the story and the teleplay, but we can discuss that as we go. I have here, yes, she's back, everyone. It's the great and wonderful Amanda Reyes. Amanda, how are you? I'm okay. I always think I'm going to memorize more of the lyrics to Masquerade so I can quote them, but all I can think of is your invitation for a short vacation. <laughs> every episode, that's the only line I can remember, even though I sing along to that song every time I watch the show. I can't remember the song after it's over. You, I, I will say the one, the one thing I, I do with a lot of these shows when I watch them is I skip the opening credits. Uh, unless they change from episode to episode, like the early Erie Indiana's changed. Um, but if if they're the same thing, like like watching uh, the gang and Bourbon Street Beat come out and look awkwardly towards the camera, I don't need to see that every time I, I watch it. But but sometimes I'll skip over Masquerade if I'm like, okay, I want to get right to the episode. And so I actually for this one, I watched the full theme for probably the first time in like three months. And I was like, wow, this is really long. I it is, <laughs> but it's also very good, and it yes. makes me think of. Do you remember that that pilot movie called Velvet? Did you ever see that? It was kind of a Charlie's Angels ripoff from like yeah, the mid '80s. I think so. Yeah, and yeah. Do you remember the opening? Um, mm. It's really long, the theme song, and it's not nearly as good as Masquerade. It's like you can't remember it like two seconds after it ends. Uh-huh. But it's neat because in this one you get a phone that's like an apple. Sure. But in the mask in the Velvet opening you get a lipstick that when you like turn the bottom of it it's actually like a bomb detonator what yeah and it like blows something up and the lady who played the mom on dawson's creek margaret hume i think is her name Mm -hmm. she's the lady with the with the detonator lipstick oh wow margaret hume what is she or is it mary margaret hume it's something like that she She was was the mom she's the she's she's the mom in erie indiana i believe Oh, is she really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm going to... Well, I, I don't want to be an idiot and Google that right now. We're, we're going to discuss the episode, and maybe when you're giving your... Th- no, I don't want to do that. That's rude. I'll come back next episode. <laughs> next fine. episode, I will tell... But I'm fairly certain that's the, the mom from, from Erie, Indiana. Oh, she uh, was because, the mom for everybody. She was you, She's the world's mom. Yeah, and she's a pretty hot mom, too. She's uh, beautiful, yeah, yeah. She's absolutely yeah. beautiful, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so let uh, let me give a little breakdown of Spanish Gambit, and if I get lost uh, halfway through, consider, yeah, don't ask me. Consider this to be my own little gambit, having fun <laughs> with you, the listeners. So I, I think that story itself is very basic, 
but it gets it gets larsened in there and just kind of goes in a strange place. But um, uh, the episode begins with um, a uh, we're in Barcelona. And a truck that's supposed to be hauling Russian vodka is pulled over. There's a shootout because the guys are feisty. And they find basically this gigantic, you know, the old-style computer systems that you would see in, like, you know, war rooms and things like in the 80s and stuff like that. You know, the big, with all the transistory things and all the microchips and all the all the stuff like that. Um, and it's like, what is this? The guy, and the guy's confused. And... We learn from uh, Lavender, who's with uh, with the gang in the limo, that that is SatTrack Four, which is the latest big satellite defense thing. <laughs> it's a great name because it, it it actually sounds like a satellite. Yes, yeah, it does. And it was stolen by the Soviets, and now it's been stolen by this wealthy sort of arms not arms dealer, but kind of just like. I was a little vague as to what he was exactly. Just some jerk who steals things and auctions them off to the highest bidder. So he steals this from the Soviets, and now he's going to auction it, sell it back to the Soviets. And there are a couple of Soviets there. One of them is named, like, Vasily Petrov or something like that. And uh, and the plan is that the masquerade gang are going to go in with three people. Uh, a woman named Lucy Dover, who's a MIT model. Well, she's a model who graduated from MIT. <laughs> yeah. And she is there for two purposes, to help breaking into the places they need to break into to get to Satrack, and to also distract Richard Jekyll. Jekyll? I've never said his I one. think it's Jake. You know what? I say it both ways. Mm-hmm. So I don't know myself. I'll say Jekyll. We'll say Jekyll on this one. Okay. Um, and, uh, from Baywatch, and, by the way. So yes. I, I guess he didn't do Baywatch Nights, but there's a little maybe connection there. Yeah. And and um, and R- Richard Jekyll and this this he'll come up in a moment. Uh, so so you get Lucy who's doing that. Then you get a guy named Clint McRae who's like a like a Hooper esque stuntman who's going to help out in the sort of breaking into where they need to get into and basically keeping safe a man named Waldo played by Henry Gibson. And I know we all want to keep Henry Gibson safe. So. Uh, so his uh, McRae's job is to keep Waldo safe. And Waldo is one of the people who designed sat track and what their the masquerade plan is is to make sure the soviets get sat track but they're going to break in and um uh replace certain um uh, microchippy thingies with other thingies that are incorrect to give them false information uh now this involves uh them having to delay the soviets a lot delay the um uh spanish uh, salesmen i call them that a lot and it also has them uh it's william tucker is richard jekyll and he is from another division of the government and he has been sent to destroy sat track and so it becomes sort of a two-pronged thing maybe even three where yeah i guess where where they have to distract richard richard jekyll's character um to keep him from blowing it up they have to get into where Satrak is to replace these things and 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 give the Soviets the wrong information, and they have to delay the Soviets and and the Spanish guy whose name Jorge Castillo. Um, they have to delay him from uh, doing the sale, and and so that that's kind of it's kind of a three pronged thing. There's a lot of stuff going on, and um, I was surprised at how that synopsis pretty much made sense. Yeah, now, it does. Now it might start to make a little less sense. Amanda, what did you think of the episode? Um, it's okay, but I uh, when you just spelled it out there, I was like, wow, okay. 
I guess it did have a linear story. Sort but of. Sort of. Well, but I guess the problem is, is that this is one of the masquerades where the plan doesn't work. And the plan is already so vague, the original plan, that when they, they, they have to go to plan B, and it gets really convoluted because the first plan I didn't fully understand because she, the, the model was supposed to be like a distraction. I guess we'll talk about the story. Mm-hmm. But like, but she's supposed to be a distraction for Richard Jacob, but then he leaves early and he goes to the room and finds out they stole something that he had hidden. And then, but then they cut to the next scene and she's helping them with like the, over this barbed wire fence thing. Yes. But it didn't make sense because if she was supposed to be there and be his distraction, how did she end up as part of <laughs> yeah. the people doing that part of the, you know what I mean? She's yeah. somehow yeah. supposed to be in another place. And so I was like, I don't understand what she's doing. And then, and then that whatever their plan was didn't work. And I feel like uh, Henry Gibson and the stunt guy were wearing like Zorro masks. Yes, at, some at point. one point, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't understand it. And then, and then they're like, oh, I guess the plan failed, so we got to go to plan B. And then, and then it was just convoluted. So it was really hard for me to even understand what was happening. But that said, <laughs> like so many of the other episodes of Masquerade, it, sometimes it's okay. It's less okay here, I think, maybe because the cast might have been too small. But there's Michael's Constantine is in it as one of the Russians, right? And um, Alejandro Ray yes. is the yes. jerky business yes. guy that sells. And cast, Henry yeah. Gibson, yeah, it's got a great. What, what few people they have peppered in to the cast are wonderful. But it's even the stunt guy who I'm not sure I know the actor's name, and I really feel really bad about that. But I know I've seen him and stuff. He's so good, and the relationship between him and Henry Gibson sweet. is sweet. Yeah. Oh, weird. so wonderful. Yeah. And so, but the story itself, it's just. I watched it twice, and I'm still not really sure what happened. <laughs> and I kind of feel like Richard Jekyll's character seemed more of a nemesis to Lavender than he was because mm-hmm. by the end of it they're all buddy buddy. Yeah. But it felt like it felt like it was more than just him trying to make like Lavender trying to make sure that Jekyll's plan didn't go the way it was supposed to because they had two different plans for mm-hmm. Sat Track. It kind of felt like they were gonna kill each other to me. And so I was really surprised when it ended with them like sharing a drink and laughing. I think I think that's the best way to, to end any day between <laughs> government agencies. I, I I think the the thing with it is when I first watched it. Here, here's the thing with Masquerade is you, I I find myself having to focus more on Masquerade than I do like Dennis Potter's on your own life. Yeah, like Dennis Potter's The Singing <laughs> Detective. I didn't have to focus this hard on to to figure out what was going on. And and the thing the thing about that um the fan, the the fan playling the plan failing was that I'm Spoonerism boy today. Um, the thing about the plan failing is I sort of kind of miss that. I may have turned away. I may have been taking a note. I may have been on the phone with the president. No, I'm kidding, of course. I don't know what I was doing. But um, uh, it, it just I kind of miss that. And so th- immediately following that, go to plan B, there's this long sequence where Lavender is suddenly on a motorcycle and drives oh, off a right. cliff and explodes. And I, right. I sat there going, wait a minute, I missed 30 seconds. I have no idea what just happened, so I had to rewind and say, "Okay, the plan failed." And it's um, it's 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 it's. I I think the the only thing I could think of for what they're doing with Lucy there and her dancing with with um uh William Tucker and then suddenly being at the site is there's a possibility, possibly. I could be making this up. I could be justifying something that because they send everyone on the mission, and then um, 
our main guy, our main folks, uh, Greg and Kirsty, have go into his break into his hotel room. So I thought they were doing those things at the same time, and she was meant to be distracting yes. Richard Jekyll's character from them going into the hotel room. And yet she still arrives at the... So there's something in sort of the timeline, which is like, is something... Did, are we missing something here? Um, we could be. We certainly could be. Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, um, this episode is, is... I don't think it means to be overcomplicated. I mean, I, I, I think the thing with Masquerade, when we call it... Um, uh, Love Boat meets Mission Impossible. This one could have done with a little more Mission Impossible and had a little more focus to it. Yeah, and it could have I, had a, or it could have had a little bit more Love Boat. Like it could yeah. have had because it has a bromance in there. Yes. So you know, that was very well done. Maybe it needed more. It needed more of the character. So the thing about Love Boat is it's just a bunch of people sitting on a boat talking. You know, basically. Yes. And maybe they needed more of that mm-hmm. instead of Lavender on a motorcycle. And I, at first, I was like, it. Who got on the motorcycle? Like, I wasn't even sure at first. Yes. And then, and the, the thing that Masquerade does that's so interesting, and I guess a lot of shows do it, is, it's, is that they have the big fake out. So yes. we're supposed to think that Lavender died. Mm-hmm. And then it's, you find out that somewhere the stuntman switched places, but we never see the stuntman take the switch. Yes, and, and it's like a dummy is put in the place or something. Yeah. yeah, or whatever they did. They had to have used a dummy because the, okay, so I'm pretty sure the motorcycle blew up like point one tenth of a second before it hit the ground. Possibly. Yeah, it Possibly. looked like it just blew up like right before it was supposed to make contact, and it blew up really big. And I don't know that a motorcycle would blow up like that <laughs> if we're going off a cliff. I'm not positive, but like, it it really just blew up, and um, it was those, amazing. Those effing Spanish motorcycles, they just they're like <laughs> they're like pintos. They go like that. Yeah, but it was hard to like. It was I wasn't even sure who was on it at first, mm-hmm. and like. It was it was just like you talking about it now. I it's just so difficult to understand. But it has like pockets of moments that are really good. Like there's this really great moment where so first of all, Jacob's character is like a total womanizer. It takes like two yeah. seconds for him to like yeah. see a woman, and every all the blood leaves his the head on his shoulders <laughs> and goes somewhere yes, else. Yeah. And and he can't think for himself. And so he becomes a really easy target that way because first they use the model and then they get Casey. And um, I can't even remember Greg Evigan's characters and Danny, Danny to get in Danny to get into a, like an argument, mm-hmm. like a lover spat in front of him, and he's literally like three feet away, like making goofy eyes at her while she's yelling at Danny, and they're like quote unquote you know fight, mm-hmm. and and it's like wow he didn't even wait for like the dust to settle, yeah, you know what I mean, and he's all yes. over her already, and it's it's amazing, it's amazing, yes. and so like those moments are really funny because it just takes so little for him to just see a woman and forget everything else in the world exists. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, So it's amusing. And so there's stuff like that, but like, but so I could look back at that, but if you ask me to tell you the story and also something I love about masquerade and I kind of noticed it and I might've mentioned it before, but I feel like this is the first time I saw it is that there's a guy that hangs out with Michael Constantine who kind of looks like David Hebner a little. A bit. Yeah. 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 And he, his whole thing is his whole purpose for existing is so that Michael Constantine has someone to tell his plan to. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so we know what the plan is. Yeah. And, and I think they have one of those in every episode. Exposition boy. Yeah. yeah. So like that. Yeah. yeah. And so that's his job is to sit there real serious. And then every so often make a face like, Oh, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's what he does. And that actor got paid 
probably like five thousand dollars to show up for three yes. days to like yeah. make a reaction once in a while to Michael Constantine, and it was awesome. <laughs> and so like, and I remember him, and I remember mm. Alejandro Ray because he's hard to forget. But like, I just don't that story. Yeah, what and, in yeah. new trucks, so, so in the second plan, they go through this whole thing where where uh, the stuntman and William Gibson's character Waldo go into this truck to yes. rearrange the program or whatever, mm-hmm. and they somehow get into it from the top or something, and then don't they fall out of the bottom? There, there's a net. He has a yeah, net. Yeah, but where's under- the like trap door? Is there a trap door in the bottom of trucks? There's a little trap gonna- door. Yeah, it's like Police Academy Six. <laughs> When yeah. Proctor and um, Harris are sitting in the in the armored truck, and suddenly the bad guys come up through the truck yeah. and steal the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like I was like, do trucks really have that? And so like they just conveniently have like these openings in all different yeah. parts of the truck for them to sneak onto it. Yes. It's kind of amazing. But like, but like what they were doing inside the truck, I have no idea. I just know that they got into it from the top and dropped out of the bottom. It's yeah, it's it's weirdly done because it's almost really suspenseful but it's just a bit too confusing yeah because you have them sneaking into the truck and you're not sure how and you have um waldo replacing the thingies in the sat track um but you're not 100 percent sure like you 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 there are like two things lavender show that he needs to replace you're like okay so we need to see him replace two but at the same time this is happening like the soviets have restolen i think have they? No, they haven't. I I, I want to say like this. I I got confused at the end. What was I happening? Think, well, first of all, just before we go on with the story, I want to say that you saying it was almost suspenseful but a bit too confusing is Rob Zombie's entire filmography. <laughs> okay, so that's, that should be the tagline of all of his films. You know, almost suspenseful but a bit too confusing. But mm-hmm. you know, we like Rob Zombie. He seems like a nice guy. Yeah. So, so but, but but I think. And I don't know, and I don't want to get quoted on it, because if somebody watches it, they're going to be like, you're wrong. My understanding is that Richard Jekyll was supposed to still sat track, but they were supposed to reprogram it to screw up the Russians so that they were sending false signals out or something, right? And so I think maybe Jekyll stole it. But I, 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 I thought he wanted to blow it up. Maybe he was supposed to get rid of it. Maybe he... Because when it got to the end, because what happens right at the end, folks is the um, they think Lavender's dead. So uh, the Soviets are wiring like five million bucks to the the um, Alejandro Ray. Um, but um, uh, Lucy, the MIT model, and Lavender intercept the money and put it into like a U.S. government account. That's but right. Then, but then I think the Soviets kind of steal it back at the last moment. But And Richard Jekyll Maybe. tries to blow it. I, I, I'm... Because I'm not it's, sure where they're going so crazy in that truck. If if they're like, it, yeah. Oh, I'm just it's hilarious when you said that. It, it reminded me that they were like they were auctioning off the soundtrack to the highest bidder. And I think we've done this conversation before. But you know, like in Austin Powers, when he's like, "I'm going to ask for a million dollars," and they're like, "What?" What? And so they're so they were only asking for five million dollars for the satellite. And I was like, "Wow, that's nothing." Yeah. In today's terms, you know, that's like a joke. Mm-hmm. And so like. And when they when they were like I I'm gonna because I think they were originally gonna ask for a million and they pushed it up to five or something like that I feel like there was like some raising of the price but like and then and then when the money got moved they thought the Russians had stolen the money right I think so 
Because at I the didn't... end, Alejandro Ray's like, if that bastard ever comes back, but he didn't, I don't think he said bastard. And he said it, that's not a very good Alejandro Ray accent either, but <laughs> like, um, um, you know, if that, I can't do it. I can't do a hundred. I'm going to try. But anyway, he's like, if that guy ever comes back into town, he's in trouble. And so they were like sort of double dutying what their thing was because they were like, they got it back. But then they're also, if he comes back into town, they're going to annihilate him. Right. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. So, 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 okay. Now we talk it out. I get it. So it's the, the, the Soviets gave him the money and then they, they stole it back. But the U S had already taken the Soviets money. Yes. And so the Soviets in the end, after, um, McCray and Waldo get out of the truck after uh, changing the things in the sat track. The Soviets get the sat track thing back, and so Alejandro Ray's character thinks, "Oh, they got the sat track and, and the money." Yeah. But but actually, the 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 sat track is now sort of sabotaged in a way, and the money is with the U.S. Well, I think that's I, what happened. I also want to point out that I'm pretty sure that when Alejandro Ray needs the money wired into his account, he calls his bank with people in the room and he's whispering in the phone, it's like his bank account. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my password is Louis Bunuel. I don't know what, what, I I forget what it is. I think it's Valencia or something. It's Valencia, I think it is Valencia, yeah. My password is Valencia. Like they're not going to hear it? Like the people on the other side of the room, it was hilarious. I guess whispering was different back then. I think we whispered different. Just he's whispering. You don't listen. That's just a gentleman thing. But I, the more we talk about it, the more it makes sense. Now, not that I'm going to go back and watch it again, um, because it's probably just going to bother me. But um, but uh, it's it's. I think it's 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 an episode where it has like pockets of fun, mixed with too much going on. Yeah. And and like and and like. I mean, I, I, I'll be, I'll be um, full disclosure. I've not watched a lot of Mission Impossible in my life. I find it, it makes me rather anxious when I watch it. So I can't. Uh, I think it's those subliminal bits where they like put in those subliminal images and things. Don't, you mean like that? the death mask and like the rosary what, falling? Whatever it is, they do. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, the, uh, uh, but, but, uh, yeah, Mission Impossible. Uh, I, I think it's a very great show from what I've seen. It's cool, uh, but I haven't seen a lot either. It's just I had a mad crush on Greg Morris. Sure, sure. And, and uh, I, I feel like he was on an episode of Masquerade now, but I can't remember. I want to watch the ones with Linda Day in them later yes, on. Yes, yes. I bet those are fun. But I find the Mission Impossibles, I mean, that show is constructed to be a suspenseful, anxiety-producing hour. Whereas Masquerade is a mix. Yeah, it has, it has the plot, but it's also like, like you said, like the moments between uh, Clint and Waldo are really nice. It's just like, like Waldo is this super scientist who, you know, is like doesn't pay attention when Kirstie Alley walks in the room and tries to talk to him, and Clint is very much like a Burt Reynolds esque um, Hooper kind of stuntman kind of guy. But in the end, they're like, I forget what it is. They keep saying to each other like, you know, there's I'm a damn oh, fool, or I must only, be yeah, crazy. yeah, like. Yeah, like only a damn fool would do something like this. And in the end, they're saying that back and forth to each other. It's really, it's really nice. And I would have actually liked to see a little more of that. Yeah. And then, and then maybe at the very end, that one crazy old lady who used to drive her car and everything just go like right <laughs> through a wall. You but, know, we forgot to mention that uh, Waldo had a wife too, and that was a common trope. Yes. We started to see a massacre mm-hmm. where the wife comes, and she normally doesn't know what's happening the entire time, and she just That's bitches right. about everything. One time, Elaine Joyce kind of, they had to clue her in because she thought her husband, played by John Saxon, was getting into doing... She saves the day, doesn't she? Or she, she might. She drives help? a car yeah. or something at some mm-hmm. point. But, like, um, like um, 
in this one, like the Rue McClanahan one from early on, that's mm-hmm. the other one I remember, like, they, they just complained the entire time. Although I will say Waldo's wife was kind of a hottie. <laughs> yes, yeah. yeah well, it's kind of know, stunning. That's probably why he brains, didn't notice. Uh, brains are hot, you know, so smart, well, smarts is hot. Well, it's interesting because they tell Lavender says to Casey, you have to bring in Waldo. Yes. But it doesn't make sense because he doesn't seem to... Anything, nothing moves him about her. <laughs> yes, yes. His, yeah, the most, the most excited he gets is is those moments with Clint when he's Clint. I didn't realize his name was Clint, uh, the stuntman. <laughs> you can you're not going to call him Bert. So in the mid '80s, why not call him Clint? You're, she's yeah. showing everybody you're Clint. Why? Because she's <laughs> proud of it. Well, I'm proud yes. of mine, but I don't show it to everybody. <laughs> Back to school. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, now I just uh, wh- wh- I just I have the I have the episode playing here and I forget as much as we might goof on um uh William Tucker Richard Jekyll's character he does have a moment where they try to drug him with a cherry oh, like he's a, in a smart, drink yeah. but but he actually doesn't eat the cherry and he he is able, and that's how he gets I think into the final chase where he tries to blow up the truck with the guys in it I think yeah I didn't even realize that's what he was doing I'll be it's, honest. It's it's shot a little weird where he suddenly sits up and he spits out the cherry. But you oh, don't... that I knew. I mean, blowing oh, okay. up the truck. No, the part oh, okay. with the cherry I really liked because he does this whole thing where he's like, I don't feel so good, and then mm-hmm. he go he does he plays it all the way up to his room, and then he, and then you see him take the cherry out of his mouth, yes. and you're like, ooh, he's a little smart. Yeah, I I, I just thought uh, I just saw it here, and I thought my first thought when I saw that was that's the cherry, right? I thought a little close up. Would have uh, would have sealed that. Oh, but I, it's I think... a bad copy too, though. So who knows what it kind of That's probably true. looks like? Yeah, this this, this the, my copy is um, tracking, also tracking is um, an issue. When spying was just play acting, it was so good. When you just mm-hmm. pretended you were like having a fight with your boyfriend, who was your agent friend, yes. or like you pretended like you were drugged. Mm-hmm. That's like being an agent was all about just play acting. Being a detective, right? Like Magnum and Rockford, it was yes. all about play acting. And um, and I loved it, and I don't know why that stopped. Maybe because it's not realistic. Yeah, is is this the is this the episode where um, because this one apart from the brief moment where uh, Kirstie Alley's character goes to get Waldo, the other the other two are already uh, recruited. Is this the one where they're on the plane and Kirstie Alley is asleep? I think and, so. And Danny comes up to her and says something like, "I love when you're dreaming about me," or something like that. Yes, <laughs> so that one. Cute little moment. It's like we need you up on deck. Oh yeah, and I just saw Lavender get on the motorcycle. It's such a weird moment because he like goes out of the back of the hotel they're in, puts on a motorcycle helmet, and gets on a motorcycle. And you're like, Rod Taylor, what are you doing? Come on, stop it! And um, I'm convinced that they're in Barcelona. I'm absolutely convinced. Thank you. Good night. Um, <laughs> what 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 else, what else do you have on this one? Uh, not much because there wasn't a lot going on. I think we hit the high points of it and the fact mm. that it's confusing. I'm trying to think of anything else really happened. Um, mm. uh, no, unfortunately, it's just 45 minutes of like what? What's going uh-huh. on? Yeah. And and the funny thing is, I'm actually watching the chase between Lavender and uh, the Soviet guy, and I have I have been on that road in L.A. I, I've been on that road. That's one like Benedict Canyon or one of those roads up there somewhere, you know, in between um, the valley and... Um, uh, no, I'm sorry. I meant, I'm, I'm, I meant in Barcelona. I've been on that road in Barcelona. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, it's, it's a beautiful glamorous. road. It's, it's a beautiful road. 
Oh, good old. I did like I did like the room they were doing all the dealings in. I guess it was Alejandro Ray's house. I thought it was a hotel room, and I was like, wow, look at that fireplace Mm. in a hotel room. That's really fancy. But I think it was just a place he already lived in, like a home. But it was really beautiful. It's only in that one room, so who knows where that room is or if it exists or just Mm. a set. But it was really cool. Um, The bar was cool. Mm. But, like, you know what it needed? It needed Tanya Tucker singing on stage. Yeah. That would have been fantastic. Yeah, they like, if they could just bring back some of the other, like people from the other episodes that we loved that would be well, that, like well, if, if it had done a full season they could have done like a final episode where they would have brought back like a half a dozen of the favorite characters from the season yeah. you know I, I think I, it's tricky because there are only three people in this one and yet they're kind of all slightly underserved especially Lucy yeah who does two electronic things and um, uh, she's hanging out a lot, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. And, C- and Clinton Waldo had the little little relationship going on, but it's um, it's it's weird. There, <laughs> you know, occasionally there are episodes of Masquerade where I think, why couldn't the three of them just done it themselves? Yeah. <sighs> oh, we thought that when there was they had the um, they were on this boat, and remember there was that couple that owned. Um, the health fitness clubs and they needed them because one of them had to like saw a string on a weight machine till it was really thin so it would break at just the right moment so I think William Smith would hurt himself or something yes yes Yeah, and And they put the fake cast on him or whatever yeah and we were like we were like why couldn't they have just done that like you don't need an expert you don't need somebody who owns a chain of health clubs to go on a boat and do that you can find a thousand different people including the three people on the boat yeah. That could do have done that, and, and that was their sole purpose of being on the mission. Yeah, I, th- I think this one, like Waldo, that makes complete sense. Yes, absolutely. He, he designed it. Um, Clint McRae, I don't know that it makes sense, but I love the way they mix together. Yes. And I love I love the fact that he he is basically like, I do all kinds of crazy crap, and I'm going to help you do the crazy crap, and I'm going to sort of cradle you, su- sweet small man, and 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 <laughs> and help you out. Um, but 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 Lucy is like it, it's that thing with Lucy where it's like I don't know if it's this is me just just reading it to or being being a jerk or, or reading it to it too much but it's like she was an MIT graduate and she put herself through school by modeling and you're like okay so both of those things are going to be important and they are sort of well yeah. she got kind of me too because they were like yeah. oh we just need you to be a distraction for this guy mm-hmm. and so really while you're here. You're going to do a couple of radio communication things that basically anybody could do. Yes. And then you're going to, like, be pretty so that Richard Jacob will want to have sex with you. She, she has – oh, I'm sorry. Well, that's, like, that's bad. Yeah, because she has that, that weird moment where she's sort of bilocating between the hotel and the barbed wire world. Um, she she does do a thing like she puts up she blocks the electronic eye so they're able to separate the barbed wire and that's cool beans but she doesn't go in I think I, I think she stays outside um, well I guess you don't want to send everybody in um, you want you want to keep that to a minimum but she does get to do that cool thing I just wish they would have had her do more cool things I feel like I feel like in the thirteen episodes of the show possibly apart from the one with with Linda Day in it and the ninjas we're not going to get a fully fledged perfect conception and uh, of what this show was i think it's it always feels a little off on e- even episodes i love it's like why was that person you know yeah it, it, it always it always feels like they didn't um so 
someone didn't think something through. That that might be a Glenn A. Larson thing, actually, from seeing a lot of his shows. Well, he maybe he I was I was told, and you might know this because I never watched Buffy really, but you mm-hmm. know Josh Whedon had like a Bible, and he like like soap operas have, and like he kind of knew way in advance where his stories were going to go mm-hmm. before they even got. I think to the script and sure. then before they got to the season. And so like every season went exactly according to this very mapped out plan. Mm-hmm. And Glenn A. Larson could have used that, I think because yes. like, it feels like it was like week to week. They was just a bunch of writers sitting at a table and they're like, one of them will be a model who went to MIT. Ooh, that sounds so good. Put that in there. Ooh, what if we make one of them really short? Oh my gosh! Is Henry Gibson available? Yeah, well, if he's not, he could we get Artie be? Johnson. We can get Artie Johnson. Yes, we can get Artie Johnson. <laughs> but like, but like, you know, it or Michael like, J. Pollard. Yes. Or is it? Was that yes? <laughs> and it just felt like from week to week they kind of developed things, and, and maybe, and I know a lot of shows in the '80s didn't have story arcs that kept going, but I think maybe it would have benefited them if they sat down and thought, let's think what the first 20 episodes should be, and then like, and how they should work out. And then spent time with them instead of like really just it felt like just throwing something up every week. Because because you, you you would have the feeling of, of the building that that things would because you never I, I think I think the thing with a show like this is it should it, it should build as it goes it, even though that wasn't quite what they did but it sh- it should have in the suspense because you don't want to watch one episode and go wow that was incredible and then did kind of what we did with this episode and go. I didn't get what was going on, and we both watched it twice and took notes. Yeah. And, um, and yeah. I just want to briefly point out one thing I wanted to mention was that when Kirstie Alley is the tour guide, they're going to all these really historic sites in Barcelona, and they pass by a place called the La Sagrada Familia, and she says it's a very controversial building. And then, they, then she's like, oh, look, here's a church. And we were like, why? What's so controversial about that building? <laughs> I started to look it up, but unfortunately I didn't have time to see why it was controversial. So maybe one of your listeners knows. But it was just so weird because she's like, she's like, this very controversial building. Then we have an ice cream shop. Yes. And it was like, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> and so I got kind of lost. There. It's, uh, can I, I, I have the episode playing here and... Um, when um, Clint and Waldo break into the truck through the underneath, there's actually a shot of them like removing like a plate or something, and they're in a net under the truck wearing these like super crazy like old people sunglasses. Yes. It's like, what is going on? I mean, it's like, all I can think of is Glenn A. Larson being like, Knight Rider. This is going to be like, something you'd see in Knight Rider or something. I don't know. Was Knight Rider on at this point? I, think, I was. think so, but I don't know. Almost. I think, oh, I want to say maybe 84. Uh, uh, I, I, oh, uh, maybe. Late 84. Late 84. Um, and now, uh, I, I know, I don't, I don't know if, did you have cast stuff to discuss, or did this episode stymie you and you're okay? Yeah, I mean, I don't have anything to say about the cast. I mean, we like them, but like, I will say on IMDb, there's no listing for Henry Gibson, and I'm That's really... a weird, huh? Yeah, because yeah, he's such a major component to it. Yeah, um, I, I will say the um, uh, Clint McRae is played by uh, a gentleman whose name I do not know, but I take that as a as a sort of badge of pride that I've seen him in a lot of things, and I go, I enjoy you, sir. He is in one of my favorite wintry movies that I watch every year. I used to. I first saw back in 1998. I rented it from Super Duper Video and Magnolia and Vineland. 
uh, from 1998 to 2004 when they closed down. And then I bought the Code Red DVD. And now I own the Code Red Blu-ray, which is a gorgeous Blu-ray. And it's a film called Devil Times Five. It has a lot of other names. Leaf Garrett's in it. Yes. Um, Boss Hogg is in it. And it is set in Big Bear. And it's an incredibly good 70s. It's a killer kid movie. And it's so good. And he is more or less the last man standing in the film. Spoiler! But you you can figure that out from the beginning. Um, but he he I and I really like him, so it was, it was fun to see him in the. I think I just saw they're they're doing another car chase on some L.A. roads, and I think I saw a couple palatial estates go by. I th- I think I saw the Spelling House Ooh. just pass by. Ooh, gorgeous, gorgeous in Barcelona. Yeah, well, of, of course, course Spelling would have a place in Barcelona. Of course he would. Of course he would. Do you think that was an fu for Larson to Spelling? <laughs> like I'm going to show your house and not pay you for it. Yes, here's your I house. Cre- I create hit shows too, just not this one. And he's he's yes, exactly. And he zoomed in on the gift room where they used to wrap all their gifts. I don't know. Did you ever hear about that? The gift room. I I know that the the house had like eighty eight rooms or something like that, yes. but I don't I don't know that much about the spelling estate. Does it still exist? It does. Uh, the last I heard of it, they sold it like five or six years ago to like a billionaire heiress. Or oh, something wow. Like that. I don't know if she still owns it or what it is. But yeah, it still exists and it's still this gorgeous, huge, epic place. And you just think, Aaron Spelling, sure. Why not? Why not? Hey, why not? Exactly. Uh, so um, uh, Richard Jekyll, I, I, will, I will end with this, I guess, that... Um, he, he puts a bomb on the back of the truck that the Soviets are stealing that our guys are in replacing things. And as right as he's about to remotely activate it, I think, I'm a little confused, but I think the Soviets shoot out his tires. And he has this terrible, like the car flies down a hill. And I think it actually goes on to like the mash set at one point. Oh, it goes down a hill and it flips and flips and smashes into a, a tree. And he gets out. His remote is messed up, but he's just fine. He's Richard Jekyll. Thank you very much. Hey! So, that is um, true. They they don't, it's like the eighth team in a way. Like people die, but like the main guys always somehow, they just get discredited. Yes, that's their yeah. big thing. Yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> and that that that's tricky when it comes to suspense. But um, Ooh, ask yeah. Rob Zombie; he knows all about it. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so, um, uh, so uh, do you have anything else on this one, Amanda? No, I think that's exactly what it is. It's not one of the better episodes. It's watchable, um, but it's probably the biggest high point is the buddies between the two guys yes. working together, and the rest of it is kind of throwaway. Uh, so, uh, Amanda, uh, what, what are you doing? Where are you? Are you okay? You sound good, but I worry sometimes. <laughs> what are you doing? What's going on? I worry about me, too. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's not a lot going on because it's the end of the year, and it's I'm doing things, but they haven't been announced yet, so I can't really say. But I have, there are two projects that are coming up, and also in January, I guess, it's okay to say that um, Arrow Video is releasing Edge of the Axe, on Blu-ray, which is a really great kind of slasher yes. film from Spain, and um, I did the liner notes, what? and the hysteria continues did the commentary, and um, I'm really excited about that. And 
Uh, I think they just announced, I guess I can say it, they just announced over the weekend that my friend Bill Ackerman from Supporting Characters and myself did the commentary for Pray for the Wildcats, which is coming out through Keener Lober wow. in March. And uh, the Made for TV Mayhem show, which Dan is my co-host at, and our friend Nathan Johnson, all of us got together and we did the commentary for Amazons, which is a 1984 TV movie, um, which just came out in, early in December. So only on DVD, not Blu-ray. Um, mm-hmm. So, but if you're interested in that, it's a really, really cool little weird TV movie, and it's available. Yes, hey, I did. I did not know you were involved with Edge of the Axe. Oh, I love that movie. It's good. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, and they they invent the internet in that movie. They did like, invent the internet. Everybody says Al Gore did it, but I think they did it there. Oh, I love it. I I am um, when they announced Edge of the Axe, I thought we get Edge of the Axe. Then can we get? Is it Rest in Pieces? The other oh, Jose Larraz. Yeah, that's. I just rewatched that, that weird ass film. Yeah, I'm a, I'm kind of a big fan of that movie because it's really quirky. And um, so strange. Yeah. It's strange, but it also stars this guy who played Colton Shore on General Hospital. And he's is, it, is that the husband? Yes. And, and also, okay, so the best part of it, because it's totally getting off topic, but the best part oh, of Rest in Pieces is the opening credits. Do you remember when we were kids, and I don't know what they called them, but do you remember you get, we'll get those film strips, and they were and you'd have to move the film? So it'd yeah. just be like a frame, and then they, you would listen to something, and then you'd click over to the next frame. Yeah. And they go to the airport to go to wherever the house yes. is. They've inherited, yeah. and they yeah, shoot it like it's that film strip from school. Yeah. So you yeah. see, like you see, like Scott Thompson Baker, who is the guy who played Colton Shore, pointing at a sign that says, you know, wherever they're going, which is England or mm-hmm. something, I think. Mm-hmm. And then, and they're making faces like, oh my god, our airplane's gonna take off at this time. And then you see, then it cuts. It's just a picture. It's like a still shot. Yes. And then they cut to another still shot where they're dragging their luggage to the gate. <laughs> and then there's another still shot where they're like on the plane drinking or something. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. like, and it makes reminds me of watching those film strips when I was a kid. And it's literally my favorite part of the movie. Like I could watch that part over and over. over. And over. Oh, yeah. yeah. But the oh, movie's I, really quirky. I really like it. It's really weird. Yeah. And I was going to say, I think um, the film Evil Clutch has the same sort of openings where you <laughs> see like snapshots of the I'm couple. I've not seen that. Oh, oh, you haven't? Oh, wow. No, and I wanted to. That's I. I first saw Evil Clutch at like, and this is uh, pardon our tangent, folks, but feel free to enjoy. Um, I first saw Evil Clutch at like three in the morning on HBO in like the late '80s, early '90s, and I just saw the last half hour, which is basically the film's kind of an Evil Dead ripoff, but it's Italian, so it's screwy. Yeah. Really screwy. And when I first, I remember I rented it from Video Ithaca when I was in college. And I went directly from there to a film directing class. And I was five minutes late, and the, uh, the, the, the teacher, or the professor, who was named Pierre, said, Dan, why are you late? And I said, oh, I was renting movies. What were you renting? And it was like The Wizard of Gore, you know. Uh, it, it was it was like it was The Wizard of Gore, and 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 uh, you know, no, it wasn't Rest in Pieces, but you know it was stuff like that, and and it, it included uh, Evil Clutch, and um, yeah, and I he was like, well, let's watch a few minutes of this, and we ended up watching like the first fifteen minutes of Evil Clutch in the class, and people were like, Dan, what the hell do you watch? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I know it's it's crazy, it's it's, it's weird. It's like you can overuse the Steadicam. Evil Clutch, thank you very much. <laughs> I, I recommend it, but Evil Clutch kind of begins the same way with those, like, you hear the couple like, oh my gosh, here we are, uh, we're, we're going into this village, and you see the shot, and it, we're here, it's fun. 
You know what you, you remind me of just real briefly um, when you were talking about how you saw like half an hour of it and you were like, what is this nutty thing? So that movie that I don't like that you and Nate love so much, not Last Summer Party, but the House of Death, that sure. came on A&E of all channels what? in like the late 80s, early 90s and in the afternoon and I turned it on and you know the last half hour of that movie is just media. It's nuts. It's, nuts. Yeah. it's just people getting their hands cut off and like crazy. Torn in half and yeah, yeah like, and, shot in the head. And I caught that. And I was like, what is this movie? And for years, I looked for it because I had no idea what it was. And then eventually I saw House of Death. And then, and you know, I'm not a fan of that movie. And I, and I have a copy of it, and I watch it every few years. I think, okay, this is the year I'll like it because everybody loves it. And like, I Does just, everyone love it? Everybody, I thought it was just me and Nate. No, if you listen to The Stereo Continues, I think everybody on the show loved it. Really? And, um, and my friend Meep from Retro Movie oh, sure. Love loves it. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. like, everybody loves it. And so, like, so, like, um... I finally saw it, and I think I just rented it on a whim, not thinking, not realizing it was the same film, and then I sat through it, and then I got to that last half hour or 15 minutes or whatever it is, and I was like, this is that movie I saw on A&E, like, in 1980 or 1990, and it blew my mind, but, um, you know, like, you just catch pieces of things, and then they stick in yes. your head, and you're like, what was that, and then, yeah. and then one day you just see it, and I guess maybe it couldn't live up to the hype. Seeing the first 15 minutes, <laughs> the last 15 minutes first, probably Possibly, undoes the yeah. first... 70 minutes because you no way can it be that crazy for that long yeah you know do, it's 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 up to something different throughout yeah. almost all of the film yeah, it is. up to the um yeah and so um i, I wanted to to talk more about sizes but i think we will um i will uh we, we uh yeah let's wrap this up shall we i i'm excited okay. though about edge of the axe i i did not know that i i, I saw the blu-ray and i was like oh fun that's a super fun. That's that that's that weird space where all the Europeans came to like the southwest or southeast um, U.S. and made so many screwball films from Nightmare Weekend to Troll Two to Edge of the Axe, and they're just um, that was such a weird. Someone should write a book on all the crazy ass films that have been made since like by Americans since like the '60s, like Doris Wishman, Herschel Gordon Lewis, well, um, up, up until that point. Well, somebody did write a book, oh, I wish I could remember the name of it, that I used for reference because a lot of those Spanish slashers, and this is what my liner notes were about, so it's a little spoilery, but like they're about Spanish co-productions because those were yeah. really big. And um, and they were big through the history of Spanish film, not right at the beginning, but sort of in the 50s on. And, um, and it's a fascinating history. And somebody wrote a book. And I wish I could remember the name of it because I used I read a lot of it to get an understanding of Spanish co-productions, mm-hmm. and um and it's about horror Spanish horror movies but co-production is like the kind of the theme like the theme yeah. that runs through it, and um all of them came with like that's why they have this sort of I mean obviously they're made to cash in on an American market but like they have this flavor that's so unlike anything else because it's American and it's Spanish yes the whole way through and so it creates its own identity. Um, through it like uh what was one of them like anguish is one i wrote about yes in the liner notes yeah so anyway i don't want to say too much about it so people read it but yeah, anyway sure, yeah. but yeah those movies are really strange and interesting and fascinating because it looks so much like an american slasher but it also feels like a euro sleaze film right yeah it's just off yeah uh, the, yeah it's yeah. really cool i mean i i would say that the film this year and then i'll stop the film this year is night killer which I saw at the oh. beginning of the year, and now I have on Blu-ray the Claudio Fragasso, Bruno yeah, Mattei yeah. film, which stars the woman from Silent Night, Deadly Night. Uh, oh, Tara Buckman. Yes, and the woman who gets who who gets horribly burned and has the really really 
good scene in um, Death Car on the Freeway. Yes. And Night Killer, she's doing a different kind of acting. That um, <laughs> is in a, is, is a well, Claudio Fragasso directing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, but that's sort of the thing. You watch the movie. And like when I saw Night Killer in the theater, I missed the opening credits because I went to the wrong theater and it's a long story. But when I sat down to start watching it, I sat down and I was like, oh, who is that? Oh, it's the mom from Silent Night, Deadly Night. Okay, what is this? About 10 minutes in, I was like, this looks American, but this ain't American. Yeah. What is this? And and so that's the way Edge of the Axe is in a lot of these films. They're a joy. Um, they don't doesn't have a lot to do with Masquerade. Which I'm going to return to right now. <laughs> Sorry. So, 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 um, so that is Spanish Gambit. Next up is, um, uh, next up. This is interesting. This is the last episode broadcast. I, I'm sorry, I just got distracted. I had episode playing on the TV here. Sybil Danning is in an episode coming up. So oh wow! Look forward to. Um, but the next episode is the last one that was broadcast on the network. Spying, spying down to Rio. Spying. Spying, I forget what it's called, but it's. We'll talk about it soon. So let me uh, let me wrap this up here, and we are going to hop to this. Hooray for Amanda being back! That's awesome. We got two more episodes of that left, which is cool. So now for the third segment, we're going to go to a special place. I was trying to think of something Christmassy to do, and then I thought I'd give it over to someone else. I'm going to play you. An episode of a radio show, which I believe aired December 12th, 1941. I believe it was 41, a few days after Pearl Harbor. But you won't hear Pearl Harbor mention this. It's it's a Christmas-related thing. From a show written by a man named Paul Reimer called Vic and Sade. It ran from 1932 to 1944. It was, in its original run, it had a couple of other attempts after that. But the original run, 32 to 44, the show was on five, sometimes six times a week, like a soap opera, 15 minutes a day, but it's not a soap opera. It's generally, the cast consists of three to four people. Vic and Sade, a couple who live in a house in a small town, kind of, I think, outside of Chicago. Their adopted son, Rush, later on the show, when uh, the actor who plays Rush uh, goes into World War II, uh, uh, they have another son called Russell and then uh, another character called Uncle Fletcher but it's basically you get no more than those four people at any one time generally all the episodes are well actually all the episodes that I've heard are in real time and which is fun so it's real time the cast is generally two to four people I'm sure there was probably an episode somewhere in there where there was just one person because uh, they do a lot of phone calls you know Bob Newhardy style phone calls and things and it's a show, it's, it's one of my all-time favorite radio shows alongside, like, Dragnet, you know, and, and Bob and Ray, not, not, Bob and Ray were not a radio show specifically, but um, they were on the radio, but uh, it is one of my all-time favorites. And they did a lot of Christmassy things, and so the premise behind this episode, which I'm going to play to you, is that Vic works as the head accountant at a kitchenware plant, which is, like, right down the street, and his boss, Mr. Buller, has handed him a list of names and addresses and some cash and says hey can you take care of this for me i don't have time to buy these people gifts can you um can you ask your wife to help me out and vic says no problem not realizing it might be a bit of a pain in the behind and so this episode is vic and say discussing the list warning the sound is awful this is a show from 1941 it's from a transcript from 1941 that i don't think anyone ever thought would last until 2019 so 
and, and trust me though, when you listen to this, the sound is bad. But the original version I was going to put up, the sound was worse. So this is <laughs> the sound is better. So it'll take you a little bit to focus on it, but I think you'll like it just fine. So this is Vic and Sade from, like I said, um, what is it, twelve, twelve. 1941. Uh, there's no real um, proper title that I know of for, but Christmas Shopping for Mr. Buller works. And I will actually round out this episode. We're going to we're gonna play out with this as the third segment. I'm not going to be coming back. So, um, Addy Supertrain1 on Twitter is where you can find us. Eventually Supertrain on Facebook. Eventually Supertrain.blogspot.com. Danny, D-A-N-N-Y, Slacks, S-L-A-C-K-S, at Yahoo.com. Please uh, write and leave comments and like and love. iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, it's all great. Thank you everyone so much for listening. It's onward to 2020 and a brand new old show. Oh boy, what could it be? It's going to be fun. Listen to this. Well, sir, it's early evening as we enter the small house halfway up in the next block now. And here in the living room, we find Mr. and Mrs. Victor Gook. Vic has apparently said something to upset his wife because she's regarding him wrathfully. Noose? It's a lot more than just a nuisance. It's a big, mean job of work. Well, I didn't know, kiddo. No, you never know. That's the man of it. Trivial thing in the world. He handed me a wad of bills and says, Gook, here's $20. Next time the missus goes shopping, ask her to pick me up a few Christmas presents and mail them. Huh? Well, that's not, not much of a chore, is it? I have to pick out a bunch of presents, wrap them, address them, and mail them, huh? Well, I never thought anything about it, Sage. I imagine it was something you could maybe do in five minutes. Yeah, that's the man of it. I bet if somebody give you a bucket of paint and a brush and said, next time the missus is down on Center Street, ask her to put a couple of coats of green paint on the people's bank building, you'd take it. Oh, hey, a ray of sunshine. Bully wants you to buy yourself a Christmas present. I pay you for your trouble. What kind of a Christmas present? Any kind you want, I guess. Take it out of the $20. Oh, Vic. Okay, I'm a fat kid. How many Christmas presents am I supposed to pick out? I got a list here in my pocket. Well, let's see it. Well, it says, uh, I'm a bachelor, Gook. I don't know what to buy for people. Think your missus would help me out? Is that the list? Yeah. Uh, Mr. and Ms. R.K. Leeferts, 1109 West Kilgore Avenue, Pittsburgh, Ohio. Well, who are Mr. and Mrs. R.K. Leeferts, 1109 West Kilgore Avenue, Pittsburgh, Ohio? I don't know. Are they Mr. Bullard's cousins or uncles or in-laws or something? I don't know. What shall I buy for them? Okay. How much shall I spend on them? Well, have a heart, kiddo. Read the next name. If I'm to be tortured and made miserable over this, I'm almost tempted to undertake the job myself. You go right ahead. Don't strike me as such a task, walking in a department store and picking up a few odds and ends. Don't it? No. Read the next name on the list. Uh, Cyril, May, Eugene, Agnes, Henry, and Edna Gooding. Rural Route 8, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Is that all one family? I suppose. All got the same last name, Gooding. Are they children? I don't know. Does Mr. Buller want them each to have a separate present, or does he want just a single present for the whole outfit? Well, I expect you can use your own judgment on that. Because he said, tell the missus she's a free agent, Gook. Won't make the slightest difference to me what she picks out. Read off them names again. Cyril, May, Eugene, Agnes, Harry, and Edna Gooding. Six. Cigars, or shall I buy baby rattles? I imagine they're children. Do you? What makes you imagine that? They sound like children. Sound like 
seven, maybe. Uh, brothers and sisters, you suppose? Yeah. Six brothers and sisters, all age seven. Boy, there's an outfit that's got that Canadian family with their quintuplets backed off the map. Well, send them handkerchiefs. You can't go wrong on handkerchiefs no matter what their age is. Any others on your list? Oh, quite a few more. Mm. Mr. and Ms. Margaret Gack, 218 South Union Boulevard, Humphreyside, Michigan. Mr. and Mrs. Margaret Gack? That's what Buller's got jotted down here. Is the man's name Margaret? Well, I presume. What kind of a Christmas present would you pick out for a Mr. Margaret Gack? Handkerchief. Handkerchief for Mrs. Margaret Gack, too? Well, sure. Uh. Miss Olive Soppers, 213,529 North Oak Street, Seattle, Iowa. That can't be right. Miss Olive Soppers says it's 213,529 North Oak Street. That can't be right. Her home must be right near the edge of town. Buller must have made a mistake. When are you going to see Buller again? Sometime in January. Cora, Mildred, Arnold, Allen, and Bertie Feach, Anderson, Wyoming. Brothers and sisters? I imagine. What age do they sound like? Oh, heck, you don't. Twenty-two? My handkerchief idea is a solution to this whole business. Everybody uses handkerchiefs. Read me some more nice names. Uh, Reverend Griswold J. Fix. Fix. Holy smoke. What's the matter? This name, I can't pronounce it. F-I-X-O-L-M-H-T-H-R-Y. Fix-O-M-S-Y, I guess. Reverend Orswell J. Fix-O-M-S-Y. Where does he live? 19,608,402 West Grove Street? There's at 716 Creeper Boulevard, Yatchman, Texas. Suppose he'd like a nice handkerchief? Probably be charmed with a nice handkerchief. Is that all the people? No, uh... Emma Chindle Jr. and Moses. Moses? Yes. Who's Moses? Maybe his little boy. Or his horse, or his dog, or his butler, or his uncle. Well, it was awful sloppy the way he jotted down these names. Uh. Emma Chindle Jr. and Moses. Room 619, Indianapolis, Wisconsin. Room 619, Indianapolis, Wisconsin. That's some dandy address. Emma Chindle Jr. and Moses probably live in some hotel, and Buller carelessly forgot to put it down. Uh, Cyril, May, Eugene, Agnes, Harry, and Edna Jackson. Rural Route 10, Funnel Orchard, Montana. That's the same outfit you read before. Uh-uh. Well, sure it is. Look up at the top of your list there. Oh. oh I remember that. Oh, no, by George. Sure, Cyril, May, Eugene, Agnes, Harry. Oh, wait a minute. The people up at the top of the list are named Goody, and they live in Minnesota. This other gag's name is Jackson, and they live in Montana. Both outfits got the same bunch of first names? Yeah. Cyril, May, Eugene, Agnes, Harry, and Edna Goody. Rural Route 8, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And down here, Cyril, May, Eugene, Agnes, Harry, and Edna Jackson. Rural Route 10, Funnel Orchard, Montana. Quite a coincidence. Yeah. Any more nice people? Uh, Culvert C. Culvert. Culvert Culvert Company, Culvert Building, 2126 Culvert Street, Culvert, Kentucky. Oh, come now. No, that's down here. Let's see one. Hmm? Culvert C. Culvert. Culvert Culvert Company, Culvert Building, 2126 Culvert Street, Culvert, Kentucky. 
Okay, look at all those names. There's quite a few. How much money did Mr. Buller give you? Twenty dollars. And out of that twenty dollars will have to come postage and everything. Well, twenty dollars ought to stretch out okay if you buy handkerchiefs. I should think twenty dollars is less. Telephone, Grant. Telephone, Grant. I'll get it. Fred and Ruthie? Wouldn't be surprised. Feel like five hundred? Sure. Mr. and Mrs. Joel Eggwalk, Wilkers, South Dakota. Oh, those people are all Mr. Buller's relations. I imagine a good many are. Yes. Oh, yes, Fred. Just had an idea it was you. No, not a thing in the world. Why, I bet we jump at the chance. Sure. All right, Fred, we'll be looking for you. You bet, Fred. You bet. Goodbye, Fred. Let's pump up a tire. They'll be here in half an hour or so. Uh -huh. Here's some relations. Huh? Glenn Stover, Helen Willis, and Farstall Buller, 560 West Wilp Street, Mexico City, Connecticut. Hmm. Here's the last name on the list. Fishigan, Fishigan, Sishigan, Michigan. What? <laughs> <laughs> well, his name is Fishigan. First name is Hishigan. Lives in a town called Sishigan. It's in Michigan. Oh, no. Yeah. Hishigan, Fishigan, Sishigan, Michigan. Oh, my God. I'm glad to see your good humor is restored, Sadie. Uh, how many names on that list? Uh, 34. <laughs> Can you get 34 hang good handkerchiefs for 20 bucks? Oh, sure. How much do you have to make the postage? Oh, say five dollars. Please, fifteen dollars for handkerchief. Uh, well, that's in the neighborhood of uh, forty-five cents per handkerchief. Can you get a pretty good grade handkerchief for forty-five cents? Oh, wonderful handkerchiefs for forty-five cents. I'll handle the mail and the stuff. All right. I'll help you wrap the packages too. Give you a hand with the address. <laughs> All right. I like to do favors for Buller because, after all, he's a big shot in the company. Help on Dan, help on Dan. Good old kindly keep off the grass, never look a gift horse in the mouth, trustworthy Bluetooth Jensen. Bluetooth is with Rush down at the YMCA. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yes, Fred. Oh, now, hey. No, but you're always treating. Well, all right. <laughs> you want to throw your lovely spandulics to the four winds. All right. What flavor ice cream you want? Maple. Now, why do you constantly say maple? You appreciate Fred despises maple. Tootie fruity. He despises tootie fruity also. What don't he despise? Chocolate. Okay, chocolate. Fred! Vic is shouting and screaming his head off, clamoring for chocolate flavor. Yes. Yes. Fine. All righty, Fred. Goodbye. Maple. Well, heck. What's that young lady's address on Mr. Buller's list there, the list of far off? Uh, Miss Olive Sappers, 213,529 North Oak Street, Seattle, Iowa. <laughs> and who are the people that live in the room? Emmett Chindle Jr. and Moses, room 619, Indianapolis, Wisconsin. And the Culvert fellow? Culvert C. Culvert. Culvert Culvert uh -huh. Company. Culvert Building, oh. 2126 Culvert Street, Culvert, uh -huh. Kentucky. And the man that's name and address and everything all right. Mr. Michigan, Michigan of Michigan, Michigan. Which concludes another brief interlude of that small house halfway up in the next block. But be sure to come along when we visit Vic and Say the next time. This is Ed Hurley, he's speaking. <laughs>